what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. I'm Alan. Over there is Chris. Hello. How are you, Mr. Chris? Alan, I am so excited. In the history of the show, we've never had two special films like Expendables 3 and Let's Be Cops to talk about. So yes. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, not our typical fare, but I can't wait to I, talk to you about these films. I am on board with you. I'm, I'm Hold on. Wait. Now I'm checking my... I'm sorry, Chris. I'm checking my notes here. Yeah. We're actually not reviewing The Expendables 3 or Let's Be Cops today. That's We have that slated for oh, a later episode. <laughs> I haven't actually seen either one of those. So okay, good. Was, How about let's talk about four films that between the two of us we have seen. I'm, I'm much better Does that sound like a Does that yes. sound like a plan? Yes. We're going to go from the the uh, multiplex side of things for uh, Mr. Stallone's latest uh, action opus. We're going to go the other side of the coin. Let's talk about four films that maybe you haven't heard of. Maybe you're not going to see at the big uh, shopping center multiplex these days in every town, but some ones that have been getting a lot of attention or you may be able to find online even nowadays too. We're actually going to talk about four films, Chris. Whew, four films. Here we go. This is the <laughs> ones we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the latest Polish drama uh, and critical darling film called Ida. We're going to talk about Alan Partridge, starring Steve Coogan, which is available online now. We're going to talk about Life After Beth, which is the latest uh, zombie rom-com. You know, a, a genre that we just get so many movies about. Yes. And then we're also going to close it off with Only Lovers Left Alive, the latest Jim Jarmusch film starring Tim, Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton. So a lot to cover, a lot of films to talk about. We're going to ease from there into our latest movie news and film discussions that we want to bring up and capping it off with a uh, foot candle recommends from each of us, a film that we think you ought to check out if you haven't already. Sound like a good full show? Chris, are you ready to get started? Sure, let's do it. Before we get into our first review, let me just say a special thank you to our sponsor for The Mesh right now, one of our key sponsors for the whole network, is the Greater Hickory Kia Classic coming to Catawba County, more specifically Conover, North Carolina, October 13th through the 19th, 2014. Uh, this is a, just an excellent golf tournament. Chris, I know you're not a golfer, and I'm not either, but I will say I've been to this tournament twice now as a spectator, and whether, regardless of what your feelings of golf are, it is a fun enjoyable, really, really well put together tournament. And I've heard of the, the pros that come, they're actually kind of laid back and you actually can kind of talk. I mean, don't annoy them while they're trying to shoot. Right. But, yeah, not while they're putting, no, but you can, cool. you have a little more time with a little more of a relaxed environment than you may have in a other PGA level tournament. But this is nationally known tournament coming right here to the rock barn golf and spa, uh, golf course here in, uh, Catawba County, which is you know where we are located in Hickory, here the Mesh Studios. So it's really about a twenty minute drive from us, where our studios are located. October thirteenth through the nineteenth is the golf tournament dates. If you want some more information or to go ahead and get your tickets, you can do that now. Visit greaterhickorykiaclassic.com. dot com. That's www dot 
com. That's for tickets. That's for information. And I'm putting out a special invitation. If you're listening to the show and you make a trip to come to Western North Carolina for this tournament, please let us know here at the mesh. We'd love to have you drop by and uh, pay us a visit here at the mesh studios while you're in town. All right, with that out of the way, Chris, let's move on to our first movie review. We're going to be talking about the Polish drama film, Ida. Back in April of this year, Alan, you and I both had the chance to go to the River Run Film Festival that was in Winston-Salem. Yes. And, you know, we tried to divvy up films, and we saw different ones. One of the ones that you got to take in that I did not get to see was a Polish foreign film mm-hmm. uh, called Ida. Yes. And it's by the director, Paweł Pawlowski. Very, not, very good. I kind of got you, that. You probably got um, it pretty close. But one of the things that, at least in the program that we were handed, they mentioned was that, and it was a big deal, was it was shot in black and white. Yes. And the cinematography was supposed to be kind of a standout. Mm-hmm. So when you and I screened this not too long ago, um, that was something that I was paying attention to when I watched it. Right. Um, Alan, you know, right off the bat, since that was one of the things that was kind of put forward to us um, by the film festival, is that something that hit you about this film? And was that the only thing? Or how, how, did, mm. you, how did you receive this film? Uh, I will say the cinematography was the most engaging part of the film for me. But that's not to say that the rest of the film wasn't also as well. Uh, I just think the cinematography is what really within the first 10, 15 minutes, you're noticing it. And it's really putting you in a frame of mind for the rest of the film that I think is very intentional. Now, I'm sure I probably don't have to say what this film is about because everybody out there has heard of Eater, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's all over the place. There's TV commercials on every major network show. No, we're joking. Just to, just to, just to humor it. No. Yeah. Uh, so the film takes place in 1960s Poland, mm-hmm. and it centers around a young nun named Anna who is on the verge of becoming a full-fledged nun. She's yes. about to take She's her vows. She's about to take her vows, right. And before she does, I guess what's the mother superior or yes. whatever kind of says, hey, tell you what, before you do this, I think you need to go and have an experience talking to a family, a relative. Yeah. You need to connect with a family member uh, before you can move forward. Because what we learn is actually she has grown up at this orphanage. She's not an orphanage, but at this convent. Yes. She's basically been an orphan. And she's yeah. kind of like, whoa, I have a relative? Mm-hmm. And so she goes off on this journey to find this relative and kind of learn a little bit about her backstory. So Wanda, who plays her relative that she gets reconnected with. And through that encounter, they, you know, Anna slash Ida starts to learn a lot more about herself her background, which is very interesting background compared to where she is now. Correct. And also at the same time, Wanda, her relative, is going through a lot of her own kind of personal demons and some other things happening because of some choices she's made in the past or her lack of communication with her family and this girl in particular. The two take a little bit of a road trip together. True. So it does have a little bit of a road trip feel to it where they're traveling together. They're visiting different sites to help Anna reconnect with some of her history. But along the way, we just, we learn a lot more about this family and with their background and especially Wanda's background. And uh, it makes for some interesting, 
interesting moments in, in dialogue. There's some relatively shocking moment, at least one in particular later in the film. There's a really great use of music, jazz music, um, natural. What's the It's didactic music. In other words, there's no score with the film. The music we hear is all music that the characters would be experiencing right there at the moment. Right. So a lot of it, there's a great scene about a thir- halfway, a third of the way through the movie where we start to interact with a, uh, jazz performers and just get a little couple performances in there as well. I thought were really well done and of course well shot also. So it's an interesting film. It's not an upbeat film. It definitely has it leaves you with some open questions to some degree, but at the same time it actually kind of ends back where it probably needs to end. Hmm. I like the film. I really did. It's not a love film for me because I don't think this is the kind of film you really are passionately in love with, although I was in love with the cinematography. The story itself, yes, it was it was it was slow. It was you know very very thought provoking. It was very much meant to induce a mood with the theme and sure. kind of carry you along. And those films are typically not the ones I'm going to go and just sing out the rooftops and tell everybody they need to go see. But I do think if you're a fan of black and white cinematography or just good cinematography in general, and the story that we just described sounds intriguing in any way, I think you really find a lot in this film to enjoy. Well, and I, I was curious, um, the fact that it was shot in black and white, mm-hmm. um, how do you think your feelings about the film may would have differed if it was shot in color? Why do you think the, it was, the decision was made to shoot it in black and white? Um, I think, I feel like the black and white cinematography got you in the right frame of mind for the mm-hmm. story where color, it would have worked, but it, it could have very easily not conveyed the same level of the same sensibility, the same level of seriousness, the same, I found myself spending a lot more time because of the cinematography, paying attention to their faces. And mm-hmm. I don't know if the color would have distracted from that or not. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would agree with that. And actually, because I'm going into the film, I was like, you know, in this day and age, mm-hmm. to me, it almost seems like kind of a cheat to make mm-hmm. a black and white film because it's like, hey, pay attention to me. I'm doing something different. Right. You know? Sure. So to do the black and white cinematography, to make it stand out, to make it not just seem like a gimmick mm-hmm. is to me kind of challenging. Yes. And I didn't feel like this was challenging at all. Or it wasn't. It was a challenging film, but it wasn't using it as a gimmick at all. And I felt like one of the things that you kind of you touched on there was that I think the use was to kind of cut away distractions. Yes, and I agree. To have you fo- like you're saying, because faces to me in this film were very important. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I think of black and white film, um, especially black and white foreign film, mm-hmm. I think of uh, directors like Ingmar Bergman. Yes. And that kind of subject matter, like the Seventh Seal or Wild And there were some moments where very Bergman-like. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And even uh, Bergman, you know, he's kind of preoccupied with religion and faith. Mm -hmm. Well, this girl being a nun. And (laughs) so that is there as well. Um, What struck me was, considering knowing a little bit about the subject of the film, I was actually surprised how much humor there was in the film. Oh, true. Um, you know, going in expecting this to be kind of a bummer mm-hmm. <laughs> and not to say, you know, it was very heavy, but there were several instances where me- audience members laughed, you mm-hmm. know, there were jokes mm-hmm. made and, you know, yeah. so it wasn't just like, you know, a 2000 ton boulder sitting on my shoulders, the entire movie, there were some moments of levity. And so well, that I appreciated that. Well, Wanda played by Agata Kuliza. Um, yes, I'll go had that. some moments where she was a very interesting character. And I think she added sparks to the film when it needed sparks. And uh, I think that that did a lot for it. So did you like the film? I, I did. Mm-hmm. I did. I liked the film a lot. And, um, you know, like you said, the standout was the cinematography, but also 
the two the two Agatas because the Agata playing Wanda and the Agata playing oh Ida that's true yes, they both have they're the both same name. Name. their last names are different but they're both kind of hard to pronounce so yes. we'll just call um, them yeah Agata one Agata two <laughs> so the Agata that was portraying Ida yes she really stood out to me because and I could see you know some people see performances that don't say a lot mm-hmm. or don't do a lot of acting as not really being that complicated. They're like, well, the person just kind of stared at the screen or walked here, walked there, mm-hmm. maybe smiled or laughed and delivered a little bit of dialogue, but really didn't do much. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, I thought this young lady did a lot. And it actually reminded me of another black and white film. This one's silent, but a uh, passion of Joan of Arc. Oh yes. With mm-hmm. Falconetti. And she yeah. got really famous in that film for portraying Joan of Arc and her emotions on her face. And sure. she said a little bit, but you didn't actually hear it because it was silent, but you know, she became famous for that one role. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying this girl is going to be famous for doing Ida, but to me, she was just such a standout, the emotion in her eyes and her, her innocence, mm-hmm. because at the beginning of the film, she's completely oblivious to this yeah. stuff. And actually too, how she sometimes, when she's told certain things and certain things are revealed to her in the film, she just kind of takes them in and you Mm -hmm. don't really see a lot of change on her face. You don't see a big shock, but it's like, she's kind of like a counselor or, you know, somebody like a lawyer is hearing all this stuff like, okay, okay. she's processing interesting. And she's processing, but she doesn't have it, but the reactions come later. Yes. And so it was, I thought it showed a lot of, a lot of range and something Mm -hmm. that I actually found out in researching about Mm -hmm. the film was that the director, when he was doing a casting call for the cast, he couldn't find the look and the quote-unquote feel that he was going for in the actress that he wanted to play, Ida. He had everybody else apparently yeah. done, but okay. couldn't get this girl down. So he told all his friends, tell you what, you know, just get your cell phones, and if you're out anywhere and you see somebody who you think would fit, you know what I'm looking for, take a picture and send it to me, oh, wow. and let me just see this person. And supposedly that's how this girl, she was in a cafe somewhere. One of his friends snapped a picture, sent it to him. He's like, yep, I want her, get her to come in for a a casting call. And she did. And she got the role. So this apparently was her first, you know, film. And I think it worked because of that. I think, you know, she went through several shifts in tone throughout the film where much like you described in the first half of the film, much more processing and absorbing Mm -hmm. and just kind of seeing what's going on and what she's learning then we start to see her take a little more, little more aggressive stances sometimes, take a little more uh, finding herself. And then, of course, she also goes through a little moment where she wants to kind of explore a different personality type, you could say. So it's, it's, she's constantly figuring things out, who she is and who, how she needs to be responding to this information. I, I think she was great. I think she really was. She was, she was interesting to watch. And the way the camera would really focus in on those close-ups, sometimes just part of a face, Hmm. But just you're really able to see the part of the face that he wants you to focus in on and see what they're thinking, how they're responding to situations. That was extremely well done as well. I thought, too, the I believe not have to do a little bit more research, but the aspect ratio that this film was shot in, mm-hmm. or at least how it was presented to us, was more of your kind of like the aspect ratio that uh, Grand Budapest Hotel was done in. It wasn't done in the Four whole by letterbox. Three. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't done in the mm-hmm. whole 169. It was done yeah. more of... Well, I wonder, Chris, with that and actually the the black and white cinematography, I mean, the fact that this story takes place in the 1960s, I almost got the impression he was trying to make it look like a film that was made in the 1960s. But not for like a gimmicky reason. I think just to make it so it's not distracting. And just get you in the right frame of mind. Right. I mean, I think that's a little bit of it, too. And you think about it. You're in Poland. You're living in a, a, a convent. 
color is not the most expressive around you in general. So I think in a way it's to give the viewers a little bit more of that sense of what you're around because it's snowing the whole time, Mm -hmm. a lot of white. I think that's all kind of being blended together to give us a certain tone and feel that the director wants us to have the whole time we're watching the film. So, And the openness of some of the why certain things are happening, I think some of that could be I'm not a really good student of history. Mm, right. <laughs> um, and some of the political climate that was happening in Poland during the 60s mm-hmm. and kind of communism and that, you know, they were getting over having been in World War II and some of the things that happened during the 40s and all this kind of – so all that's not very familiar to me, but it, seeing this movie makes it that much more interesting yes, to me. I agree. Um, because – certain things that were happening, you're kind of like, what's going on? And that, you know, that, that to me is a sign of a, a good movie to encourage you to learn a little bit yeah. more about situations. Honestly, Chris, I need to see this film a second time because even when I saw it at the film festival, it was not the most ideal screening environment. Mm. Uh, it was being shown not through a real true film or digital film projector. It was okay. being shown as a DVD oh. screener DVD on a not the best sound uh, projection system. Mm. So even that black and white cinematography, even watching it through a, pretty kind of a cruddy presentation format still really stood out to me as really nice. So I would love to see it in its true pure digital form or ideal film environment and a perfect uh, transfer of that. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm actually really keen to see it again, but even on my first, my first viewing, I was really, really taken by the film. I, I, you know, we usually, we weigh on positives and we, you know, mention negatives that we had. I really can't pick out, any negatives that I have for the film? I mean, it is, you know, obviously it's very serious, heavy subject matter with this girl learning about her past and some yeah. kind of skeletons in her closet. And, but for me, I thought it was all, I thought it was masterful. And, it, you know, it has a good running time, too. Oh, it's like less than an hour and a half. Right. So. Um, my only negative, and it's not even a negative, it's just this is typically not the kind of film I really enjoy. Got you. Both in the period piece, the subject matter, the style, the tone, the pacing, all that is not normally a fit for me so given that the fact that i still really enjoyed the film and really kind of want to see it again i think says a lot for it but my only negative is just it's just not normally a film that's meant for me so for take that for what you will um but again i really liked it and really really appreciated uh what they were doing there let's get out the uh, crystal ball that we usually keep in the closet until closer to uh, Oscar time, at least until October, November. Mm-hmm. But um, let's gaze into it and see what do you think about chances for this being nominated, at least for a best foreign film? Oh, absolutely. Best foreign film. And I've got to say, if, if, if the slate of acting wasn't strong this year, which I'm still not in a position to really say whether this year's acting. You haven't seen Expendables 3. The, right. I haven't seen Expendables 3. I missed Transformers 4. Right. So I don't know if Mark Wahlberg's got a fighting chance at a nomination on acting or not. Sure. Um, this is the kind of film that could squeak out a Best Supporting Actress, mm. even on, on our Oscar ceremony, for, I think, the woman playing Wanda. I could see that. Um, that would be one of those long shots, and she wouldn't win. Right. But it could be one of those squeaked-in nominations. It was one of those fifth nominations that most of America is like, who? But <laughs> I think it's a lock for nomination Best Foreign Picture. I'm just curious to see if actually it squeaks in one or two nods somewhere in one of the more uh, traditional you would categories. Wonder if, like it could squeak in a nod for cinematography. That too, absolutely. Yeah. It could be one of those dark horse entries there that uh, comes in. So I think it's actually got some legs to do a little bit more than just, just the Foreign Picture nomination. But I'd be shocked if it wasn't. Best Foreign Picture nominated. I mean, 
at this point, I don't know that many other foreign films that are making a big splash in America that are getting more critical acclaim than this film is right now. Sure. So well, I guess kind of wrap up my thoughts, you know, we tend to do like letterbox scores. Yes. Um, so, you know, if I was going to rate this from a one to five, I'd probably go, I'd probably give it a four. I- I'm giving it a four as well. I'm giving it four mostly on technical achievement, look, feel, tone, mood, not as much on story. That would maybe be more like a three and a half for me. But to me, uh, the four is, yeah, this is, I'm admiring everything you've put together with this film and all the choices you made with it. So good. Okay. All right. Great. Well, that is Ida. Uh, it's still very limited run. I don't know when it's going to be hitting online or anything else, probably in the next few months. But we do encourage you to check it out if it's playing in a bigger city near you or you have the opportunity to see it. Next, let's move on to our second review, which is the uh, Steve Coogan vehicle, a character that he has created for many years and now has his own feature film based on him, Alan Partridge. Alpha, is it Alpha Dog? Alpha Papa. Alpha Papa. (laughs) They actually dropped the subtitle off a lot of the marketing here in America, but it is Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. That was soft rock cocaine enthusiast Fleetwood Mac, and this was Alan Partridge. Love that noise. I was having a fascinating conversation with Norfolk's most sun-tanned child, just passed his details onto the social services. Alan, we're being taken over. So, Pat, no one's getting sacked. Just sacked Pat. Just gave me 30 minutes to clear out my locker. So, Chris, Steve Coogan, who we're familiar with here in the States, actually, we've talked about him. Uh, I think you may have given us one of your recommendations a while back, The, trip, the trip. The Trip. Absolutely. Uh, he's actually got a sequel to that, The Trip to Italy, coming out pretty soon as well. Uh, Hamlet 2, he was in, which I don't think I've you, seen. you saw that. I, and I think it. you may have actually mentioned it in one of our Foot Candle Films episodes. Um, he's had other random bit parts. I, I remember him as being in Tropic Thunder as the director of the film. Yes. Um, so a lot of other interesting parts. He's a comedic actor, but he's really big in the UK. And he actually created a character called Alan Partridge. It's kind of a DJ talk show host, a little more of the in the showbiz thing, but it's also just a kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of a square, but yet trying to fit himself into a very hip pop culture world <laughs> seems to be the kind of character he, he is. So here we have a movie called Alan Partridge, which I think that's just the name they're using here now for promotional purposes. Original title was Alan Partridge Alpha Papa. <laughs> and uh, we find Alan Partridge working as a famous DJ at a radio station that's taken over by a, one of the big media conglomerates who's now going to come in and rebrand the radio station and try to make it young and hip. Well, he's a DJ there along with uh, Pat Farrell, played by Colm Meany, uh, who's an actor I really, really like. Mm-hmm. All the way back to The Commitments, he was one of my favorite parts of The Commitments as a father. I remember him on Next Generation Star Trek. Well, there's that too, <laughs> absolutely. But he's definitely done a lot of interesting oh, yeah. roles. So he plays with Pat Farrell, another DJ. Well, he's a DJ that gets canned when this new uh, media conglomerate takes over. Alan Partridge does not get canned for <laughs> funny reasons that we won't explain here. But basically what ends up is Pat comes back and decides to extract some revenge by taking the radio station hostage and all the people inside. Alan gets caught in the middle between the police, between his friend Pat, between the other people in the radio (laughs) station, and gets his shot at some accelerated stardom, you know, by playing this role in this high, high stakes uh, hostage situation. 
Now, it's a funny comedy movie. There are moments of violence. It gets a little dark at a few places, but overall, it's still ultimately comedy. So, Chris, I got to just toss the question to you when it comes to comedy. You know, you either laugh or you don't laugh on a comedy like this. And if you don't laugh, uh, it's one of those you just kind of forget about and wash away and don't even think about later on. Sure. If you're laughing a lot, it's working. So my question to you, did this work as a comedy? Do you have any indication that you want to see Alan Partridge and other things that he may have been portrayed in, (laughs) uh, in England or other, other places? I did laugh. Mm -hmm. So it did succeed. The comedy did succeed on that level that it made me laugh. I wanted to laugh more. Yeah. Um, I think I can pin the fact that this work movie worked at all just because Steve Coogan was the person portraying the title oh, sure. character. Yeah. So if it hadn't have been for him, if it had been for a less comedic talent or less acting talent, I don't think it would have worked at yeah. all. I completely um, agree. It was strange because when you come to a movie like this, the question is, is it a good thing? that you haven't seen the source material Mm -hmm. or is it a bad thing? You know, something like I remember way back in the, I guess, late eighties, early nineties, um, the naked gun movies, Yes, completely unfamiliar with the source material, saw the movies, thought they were funny, but they were based on a TV show, you know, Leslie Nielsen had done it. So with this, you know, had no idea. I'd heard that he'd done a character called Alan Partridge, but I hadn't seen any of it. The whole time I was watching this, I felt like I was seeing like the second Austin Powers movie in the yes, franchise. And not the I'm first with one. you completely. So did I catch some references? Yes, but they were obviously jokes that were being made. Some other things that I think had I been across the pond in England and had seen some of the source material, I think I would have found it a lot funnier because it was like so self-referential that I wasn't getting yeah. the references. So, you know, kind of a fault of my own. <laughs> well, yes and no. But I mean, the thing is a movie should should stand on its own. And I, I'm with you completely. The first 20 minutes, I'm, I'm trying to fill in my own backstory of who Alan Partridge is, <laughs> right. where I guarantee you, if I had seen any other things that he had been in, that character had been portrayed in, I guarantee you my, 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 uh, my enjoyment of this film would have skyrocketed because sure. it's one of those when you have a character that you really like and you think is funny and you know all of his quirks, you know all when he says something, what he's probably really meaning. Here, we, we spend the first half of the film trying to still figure out who this character is and what makes him tick, what doesn't. And I, I do think if, we, if we'd had more exposure, we would enjoy the film more. But that being said, I don't think the film did a really good job for trying to initiate those that aren't familiar with him and really let you know who this character is as easily as they could have. Um, I'm with you. I laughed. I thought some parts were really funny. Yeah, I don't. If Steve Coogan wasn't the lead actor in this, I I don't know where it would have gone. It, it probably sure. would never have been made. I probably mean, there's not. just no, there's not a lot else to this film other than him. When he's not on the screen, you know, the film's pretty boring. I mean, there's nothing else going on really. So, well, uh, and it, to me, hearing you know, like you say, Coogan was the interesting part because he's playing this character he's done before. Before the storyline was very similar to Airheads, which I never saw, but uh, with Brandon. <laughs> wow. Fra- I've seen bits and pieces the, um, of Airheads. Brandon, Brandon Frazier, Frazier, Steve Adam Buscemi, Sand- yeah. and Adam Sandler. I think. Yep, plays. Adam yeah. Sandler. Yeah. Um, wow. And they play a group of like metal guys that take over a radio station because they won't play their music. Yes, very similar. Um, so very similar, and also rather unsuccessful. Yes. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I, it hinges on Coogan's performance. He is funny. There are some laughs, but it's not like it's original source material because it seems like it yeah. really you know borrowed the idea from uh, from Airheads. So. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. Um, it's not something I'm necessarily recommending to a lot of people because I think it's a very unique style of humor. 
Um, It does play on your knowledge of his character to some degree, but you can still enjoy it even if you've never seen Alan Partridge in any other show or format he's done that that character in. Uh, A couple scenes I thought were really well done and and very, very funny. Generally, the scenes where he's having a dialogue with the police inspectors and trying to prep himself for his role, and he really does see it as a role. He gets to play this big... He gets a, a very important part in the negotiations and the dealings, and he sees it as a chance to shine. And every time he's trying to interact with the police station, <laughs> it's really funny yeah. and very well done. There's a great scene of where uh, Pat, who's holding them all hostage, insists on getting some new jingles written for him. So the <laughs> actual hostages by, with Alan Partridge have to try to write some new jingles and produce some little jingles for Pat, which, I, you know, just the whole idea that's just ridiculously funny. Sure. And, uh, so a lot of little moments that were really, really well done. Um, and it was funny, just not, not as funny as it could be maybe if we just had a little more exposure beforehand. I'd agree. I think, you know, to borrow kind of a line or an idea from uh, Squid and the Whale, mm-hmm. this is lesser Coogan. <laughs> you know, there's greater well, Coogan. I, I don't know, though. This is, this is lesser Coogan. See, I, I don't know, though, because I feel like if I knew more about Alan Partridge, if I had been be watching him for years, I could probably see this as, oh, this is the best Alan Partridge film. <laughs> Steve Coogan was like totally in his A game there. But we okay. just don't know the character well enough to know, is this, is this really funny Alan Partridge? Hmm. You know, we could go back and watch some of the TV shows that he's been a part of and say, oh my God, the movie was horrible. This character is like really good in this other format. Or it could be the other way around. We don't know. So. I mean, for listeners who may not be familiar with who Steve Coogan is, um, there was a movie that came out last year, Philomena. Oh, right, and right, And a very right. different yeah. type of film based on a true story. And Coogan, did he direct that? He wrote it. I think it. he wrote it. Okay, he mm-hmm. wrote it. But, yeah. I don't know if he, but anyways, it came out, had Judy Dench. And Steve Coogan played a uh, newspaper reporter or TV reporter. But anyways, a guy who kind of fell from grace and then learns about this lady and kind of takes her around trying to find out some backstory for her. Um, but it was a very good film. And it was a very different role for him. And I think what made that role work for him was – the type of characters he usually plays are like can be kind of arrogant and goofy, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. like Alan Partridge. And then this guy was not goofy, but he was arrogant. And so, I don't know, just interesting kind of roles. Well, and if we have to kind of, I hate saying dumb it down for people that may not know a lot of his work. Uh, uh, he was in Museum. Night at the Museum. <laughs> he played Octavius, I guess, one of the the Roman or Greek soldiers or leaders there. Right. That's probably the biggest film he's been in that people would recognize. I think he also did a voice in Despicable Me too. So mm. anyway, um, so there we go. Alan Partridge. It's a funny film. Could have been a lot funnier. But again, not knowing the source material as well, don't really know if it's a great representation of the Alan Partridge character or not. But overall, it's a fun movie. I'm giving it three stars. I thought it was fine. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm on the same page with you. Three, yeah, three, three well. stars. It's, if it was on again in the background, I'd watch parts of it again. There's some scenes I wouldn't mind seeing again. But overall, the fact that I still had to remind myself what film I watched late earlier that day when I was trying <laughs> to think back to log it in Letterbox and I couldn't remember what I saw. Right. Kind of tells you how it was one of those comedies that just kind of passed you by, chuckle, and then you move on. So, sure. all right. Now, we've got two films left to review, but both of them are ones that only one of us have seen each of them. So, let's go first into, if we can, I'll talk about Life After Beth. Okay. That's okay. And then we'll let you talk about Only Lovers Left Alive, because that's the films, uh, respectively, that we have each seen. Fair enough. So, I have seen the film Life After Beth, which is stars... 
uh, Audrey Plaza, who with uh, Parks and Recreation, she's starting to get more into some film work uh, as of as of late. But really, Parks and Rec was kind of her big her big thing. She's still a part of that show. I think they're moving into their sixth or seventh season, and she's been with it since the beginning. Uh, and then we also have Dane DeHaan, who we talked about in the film Chronicle. All right. He has also played uh, Harry Osborn in The Amazing Spider-Man Two. Right. Uh, criminally underused in that film, and we also have <laughs> he John. Was a criminal, and he was also criminally underused. Yes, both <laughs> of the above. John C. Riley and Molly Shannon also uh, <laughs> playing in this, and we even have Cheryl Hines and Paul Reiser, two kind of TV stars, uh, getting back in the film business as well. Huh. So, a really interesting cast. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the film, and then you can ask questions about it or anything you're curious about. Basically, the plot of the film is, is that we, right from the beginning of the film, we basically meet Beth really quickly, <laughs> and then she's dead. Okay. And we really don't get to know Beth as a character at all, except after her death. And her boyfriend at the time, Zach, uh, is, just goes into a deep spiral depression because she's dead. Okay. He's desperately trying to reconnect with her parents. He wants to keep that connection. He's over at their house all the time. <laughs> he just wants to keep her spirit alive. Well, lo and behold, the parents start avoiding him for a while, and he gets a little bit out of shape about it. As he goes to try to snoop around and find out why they're avoiding him, he sees that Beth is still alive inside the house, and they're keeping Beth inside the house Hmm. for an unknown reason. Well, I won't go too deep into it, but it's pretty safe to say if you've even seen the poster or trailer for this. Yeah, she's dead. She's a zombie. Now, where it goes from there, I'm not going to go down spoiler territory because it does start to go down a path which is actually a problem i've got with the film yeah um okay i'll tell you this is a film where it's a it's a comedy it's got some elements some romance it's also a zombie film so it's gross and disgusting and violent the first half of this film really had me because i like the premise i really like the idea of okay this guy really really loved his girlfriend thinks she's dead now she's alive again and he's trying to wrestle with that he wants to start this relationship back with her hmm. thinks that maybe she there was a hoax that she was dead he doesn't quite think that she's a zombie or realize it nobody can explain it it's very mysterious all of that had me going i okay. loved his dynamic with her parents the parents want to keep beth inside the house and not let her out and just keep her safe and he's like no we need to go out we want to go date and hang out and all that and that whole struggle and the back and forth between the different family members on how to deal with Beth is really well done. Okay. The movie, unfortunately, though, starts to go down a path of turning into a much more traditional zombie film, uh, which, again, not going to spoil a whole lot, but there are other zombies involved. And I think once they got to that point in the film, it really became very pedestrian, very uh, common. Okay. Not as much fun. It just didn't work for me. So overall, I walked away disappointed by the film. Okay. It had such a great premise, such a great idea. And I thought the performances were really good. I like Dane DeHaan. Albie Plaza, I, I think she's a one-note actress, unfortunately. I still want to do her, see her do something interesting. But even when she's playing Beth, she's playing Beth as a kind of a spoiled, bratty, sarcastic girl, which that's all I know this person to play. And you, you weren't big on her in safety, not guaranteed either. No, I wasn't safety, not guaranteed. I wasn't big on her in that. I wasn't, I really was not big on her in, uh, that Charlie Sheen abomination. What was that film that you liked that I didn't like? Oh, uh, Charlie something, Charlie Swan or something. Yeah. Yeah. So she just plays the same character. She is the sarcastic little bratty, uh, Mm. young, young woman. And, it's fine. That works for those parts, but I was kind of hoping in this film that I get to see her play 
a really different person, maybe a very wholesome, sweet person that then turned into a zombie and said, nope, she's pretty much the same girl from Parks and Recreation just turned into a zombie. So So, when I hear you at the beginning of the review, you were rattling off the cast. Yeah. And then I think, okay, you know, I've heard of this movie, but why? So I'm curious if you had to say why you think it didn't get a wide release, you know, it is a smaller independent film, but has this huge cast you know, zombie movies are kind of popular. You know, there's The Walking Dead. This is the TV show. So it's kind of in the cultural, mm-hmm. you know, bullseye target. Why do you think this just didn't get a wide release? I, I think I think the the movie business is wary of films that mix genres hmm. too very very widely varied genres. Okay. So we have a horror film to some degree. Some elements could be seen as horror with the zombie side of it. Which, if it was a zombie movie, yeah, let's go, let's go push it out there. You've got it being a comedy, which, yes, blending zo- uh, zombie and comedy has been done. I think uh, Zombie Land was a pretty decent hit, and sure. it mixed that, z- uh, that those two genres. But you've also got this family dynamic comedy hmm. drama piece to it too, and I think I think just all those blended together. I'm sure a lot of studios didn't quite know how to promote it and market it. Gotcha. Um, that's how I took away from it. I will say, John C. Riley. Molly Shannon were fine. They were they played their parts really well. Cheryl Hines, Paul Reiser, also serviceable parts. I mean, nobody really jumped out as doing outstanding work. I will say the only one I, there was one uh, character who I'm not familiar with this guy at all. Matthew Gray Goobler, who hmm. played Kyle, which was the brother of our main character Zach. Kind of a militaristic. Reminds me a little bit of Chet from like Weird Science. <laughs> okay. Um, but he also has some interesting turns later in the film as well. So I, he was a little bit of a standout for me. He was the funniest character in the film, and he also was the most surprising for me. Okay. So Matthew Gray Gubbler, uh, I don't know anything else he's done, but somebody to keep an eye on. Yeah, cool. So Life After Beth, I, I'm wa- wavering between two and a half and three, probably leaning more to the two and a half. It just the first half was like a three and a half, and then when it got into the typical zombie side of things it it just lost a lot of steam for me so okay that's where we are life after beth uh out in theaters although not many again limited release film i think it'll be going uh, video on demand very quickly if i would anticipate that so chris we'll let you wrap up our four uh review uh, part of the show here with only lovers left of alive that's a film you saw Tell me, this is Jim Jarmusch's latest film. Yes. Tell me, uh, tell me all about it. Uh, and Jim Jarmusch, you know, he makes movies like Dead Man. He made Broken Flowers. Um, he's, you know, very much an art house director. Yeah. Um, you hear Jim Jarmusch makes a vampire movie, which mm-hmm. is what this is. Um, then if you already know who he is and you hear vampire movie, then you are going to get exactly what you bargained for. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton play these lackadaisical vampires and they're kind of like hipster vampires hipster vampires yes but since it's jim jarmusch making the film he's not interested in showing the vampires running around sucking everybody's blood and making it an action movie that's not what he's interested in it's a lot more of a thinking person's vampire movie Hmm. where he kind of yeah where he kind of um basically he sets it up where uh the tom hiddleston character adam is his name Mm mm-hmm he is kind of bored. He's just really, really bored. Wait, I have to ask, though. So is Tilda Swinton playing Eve? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> but that's talk, okay. talk me through that. That's fine. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I mean, yeah. And so... but if Adam's you, bored. Adam's bored. Okay. 
And he basically just doesn't see any, even though he is a vampire and he's basically immortal, he doesn't see a reason to live anymore Mm -hmm. because he just thinks that there's no reason to live. Everything is very unoriginal. Mm -hmm. He actually refers to humans as zombies, not because Mm -hmm. they're walking around eating people's brains, but because they have no original thoughts of themselves and they don't try to strive for anything. Which I could see that being a perception somebody could have if they've been alive for centuries. Right. And they've seen the evolution of society. I could very easily see people looking at the human race nowadays and thinking of them in those terms. That's kind of interesting. And they're, they kind of reflect back on the history that they've lived through, uh, saying that Shakespeare, well, Marlowe, the character, John Hurt plays the character of Marlowe, who is a contemporary of Shakespeare. And they kind of hint with that, like, oh, yeah, Shakespeare didn't really write anything. Marlowe's the one who wrote everything, Hmm. (laughs) which is kind of a rumor that's been around in like literary circles. So they kind of, you know, poke fun at that. But then they also look back at people like um, Shelley and other big people, you know, literary figures, musical figures, too, that have played a role in culture and Mm -hmm. art. And kind of commenting on how people aren't holding that up as important. And Adam lives and is musician himself in the city of Detroit. Okay. Which is interesting because the cinematography of Detroit shows it very burned out mm-hmm. and ratted out. And what struck me was that I know that Jim Jarmusch in Coffee and Cigarettes, mm-hmm. which was a movie he made that was basically like little vignettes of people talking. Like an anthology of different people. Right, an yeah. anthology of little mm-hmm. vignettes. One of them was Jack and Meg White talking. Mm-hmm. So I knew that he had at least met and you know worked with Jack White before. Sure. So here's this film that's taking place in Detroit that star that has as one of its subjects kind of an outsider musician type person. Mm-hmm. So immediately I'm thinking, huh, that's kind of strange because not that Jack White's a vampire, but it's kind of it's like this musician Detroit based, and it was kind of an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, sure. And then. Uh, when Eve, she lives, they, you know, they are the lovers that have been left alive, Mm -hmm. but they, you know, spend time apart and do their own thing, but then they come back together every now and then. Mm -hmm. Well, Adam, because of his depression, Eve comes and visits him. And one of the things he does is he kind of takes her on a tour of Detroit and she's like, you know, she's like, well, what can we do? He's like, Oh, I know what we can do. Um, let me show you where Jack White grew up. (laughs) And so it's like a direct shout out to the Jack White and then also the fact that Jim Jeremish knows who he is. He's been in one of his movies. Wow. And That's supposedly funny. they drive, which I'd be curious to know if it was the childhood home of Jack White, like they drive by and he like points it out. Interesting. <laughs> so, huh. um, it's kind of meta on many levels Yeah, and you know, just making references to the fact of, you know, how we hold up art, how we hold up culture. The Adam character who is this kind of underground musician really enjoys music but then when he becomes popular he's very angry about it because he feels like people are just worshiping him because he's famous not not caring Mm. about the music sure right and um that's you know that's an interesting thing to think about Mm -hmm. um, how we you know idolize fame and all that stuff so there's a lot to think about at the end of the day i liked the film but i wanted a little bit more plot which Mm -hmm. in a jarmusch film can be very hard to come by Um, Ghost Dog, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai was a really good samurai movie that he made um, a couple of years ago that basically was like the whole samurai code and it had Forrest Whitaker as Mm -hmm. like the samurai, which you didn't think of him being a samurai. But that managed to actually have a little bit more of of a plot Mm -hmm. in addition to the kind of feel of a typical Jarmusch movie and the dialogue of Mm -hmm. a Jarmusch movie. There's a lot of talking in Jarmusch movies usually. And this, this is a lot of talking as well. So... 
it's an interesting entry. Mm-hmm. I think when I had heard, oh, Jarmusch is doing a vampire movie, I was like, huh, wonder what he's going to do with the genre. It was interesting, but I wanted him to do a little more. Now, so just real quickly here, some of the performances. I mean, sure. how, you know, you've got Tilda Swinton, you've got Tom Hiddleston as the two main characters, mm-hmm. but you also had Mia Wasikowska mm-hmm. uh, and John Hurt, you already mentioned, and then Anton Yelchin, which I'm already, I'm always very curious about him because I've seen very hit or miss performances with him. Do tell. Uh, how, were, how were these guys in the film? Um, both were good. Both Anton- Adam, both Tilda and Tom? Yeah. Oh, well, the, the main two, Hiddleston and Swinton, yeah, they they embodied what I would have thought yeah. they were going to do as vampires. They were you were talking really about good. Mia Wasikowska. Was she good? She was. Um, she, you know, she is a more minor role, but the part that she's supposed to play of this younger sister of Swinton's vampire coming in and kind of causing a lot of trouble, she does a she does a good job of that. Okay. Um, Anton Yelton, I have seen him in one other thing, the... I can't remember. It was kind of like a ripoff of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I cannot remember the name. Oh, of that it. I don't know. But uh, I know he played uh, Chekhov in the start, the new Star Trek movies. Oh yeah, he was in a remake of that Fright Night movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> um, and then there was another film he was in. I like him in the Star Trek movies. I think he's fun. I haven't seen the fight Fright Night one. And there's the, another film I've seen that I've, the Ferris Bueller's Day Off thing was kind of like it was a riff on that, and he plays the like Charlie something. Charlie St. Cloud. No, no. I know uh, you're talking about. I can't remember the yeah, film either. Well, being the interns, we'll, we'll let our intern take care of that later. <laughs> but um, anyways, yeah, I've never been a huge fan of his, but I thought he did a really good job. Oh, really? And that, yeah, it was one of the better good. things I think. And he was basically he's an assistant to Adam. Okay. Um, so that that was interesting. There was just a lot of it just relies heavily on style, and yeah. it works because Jim Jarmusch is very good on that. I just wanted a little bit more. Meat. You wanted a story. Yeah, a little more story. A little bit more story. Doesn't have to be have a perfect story, but just a little bit. All right. So, what's your star rating on that one? You know, I I still haven't made up my mind. It's somewhere between a three and a three and a half. Okay. All right. So, So if I were to look back at the four films we just reviewed, am I safe to say if I had to rank them from top to bottom based on our perception and ability to recommend? Eda's at the top. Absolutely. We both of the four films we've talked about, Eda was our favorite. Uh, I'm going to go out and say that. Probably only lovers left alive might be second. Okay. Yeah. Well, that Alan Partridge third, and I'm going to put life after Beth probably fourth. Yeah, so that's kind fair. of a good way of sorting it. If you are, if you're going to an art house cinema this weekend and you had <laughs> those four choices staring you from the box office, Eda's the one you want to check out. Uh, life after Beth. If you could maybe pay half price and just see the first half, <laughs> that might not be a bad deal. Alan Partridge life after Beth sounds like we both had some positive things to say, but we would have liked a little more on, on both respect. So, okay, great. Not bad. We actually did pretty good time wise. I'm knocking out four whole different films there. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. What we're going to do is take a quick little break. When we come back, we're going to hit a few news items and then we'll wrap up with our recommendations for the episode. Stay tuned. You're listening to foot candle films here on the mesh TV. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder. You're listening to the mesh an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. 
Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We just spent the first half of the show reviewing four different films that you may be able to find in either limited release or online video on demand. Ida, Alan Partridge, Life After Beth, and Only Lovers Left Alive. Chris, let's talk about some movie news. I think we both have some items that we want to kind of share with each other and get some reactions on things. Talk about either projects that may be coming down the, down the pike here, maybe ones that are already uh, underway and about to be released, or just interesting movie news in general. What, what's uh, something you got for us here to share? Mark Romanek, who I think his most recent film was Never Let Me Go. I believe you're right. Which you were a big fan of. I was a huge fan He's of. He's directed some other things. He uh, did music videos as well. Yes. Well, he's decided on his next project. Okay. And I want to know how interested you are in it, Alan. Sure. He is going to direct a Shining prequel. Okay. And this mm-hmm. is based on the original prologue that was in the book, The Shining, that uh, Stephen King wrote. But then he took it out. I don't know whether he took it out because he wanted to or the publishers wanted to, but he took it out. But it was like a manuscript that he took out. And it basically tells the origin story of the first Overlook Hotel through the eyes of its owner. Mm -hmm. Um, And supposedly the title might be like Overlook Hotel or the Overlook or something Mm -hmm. like that. So what's your interest level there, Um, Boy, you know, I really did like Mark Romanek's "Never Let Me Go." I think he did. Did he? I think he did one hour photo he before did, that with as Robin well, Williams, which was okay, mm-hmm. not great, but it was okay. I've always been a big fan of his style of the movie, of the uh, music video direction that he's mm-hmm. done. I think this could be interesting because we do have a situation where The Shining has two different lives. You've got it the does. booked version. Mm-hmm. which they tried to make a abominable TV series or miniseries of Steven several Weber, years ago. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think worked out too well. And then you've got the Kubrick version, which is very different, has some of the elements, but really kind of goes off in its own path. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about a sequ- a prequel to the original text, I think that's fine. I think that could be interesting. If they were trying to play it up as a prequel to Kubrick's The Shining, like really clearly saying we're really doing this as a prequel to Kubrick's film, and that, that's that's not as interesting to me. Sure. So the fact that if they're basing it off of Stephen King's prologue and there's enough of a story there to do something with, Mark Romanek's a very atmospheric director. He can make something look very haunting and disturbing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm interested to see it. Um, I've always really, really liked the Stanley Kubrick uh, version of The Shining. Wasn't big on the TV series. I don't know yeah. that many people who were. And I thought the book was interesting. And I read a lot of Stephen King. Some are, some's hit and miss. But, you know, um, the fact that Mark Romanek would decide to do this, I, th- I trust him in thinking that there's something there. There's mm-hmm. material there because he doesn't make a lot of films. True. So for him to be like, yep, you know what? This is going to be my next project. I'm, 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 I'm interested. I don't have a release date, but I'll, I'll be looking for it. Yeah, good. Well, I'm interested too, only mainly because of Mark Romanek. I'm not the world's biggest Shining fan. I'm also not the world's biggest Stephen King fan. So it may not resonate quite as much with me as may somebody else. But Mark Romanek, I think, is an interesting director. I think the concept of the Overlook Hotel is a, is a frightening one and one that you could do a lot with. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just going to be... It's going to be really interesting to see what path they take with it. Sure. And if it's something that's seen as an affront to Shining fans <laughs> or if it's seen as a really good compliment to the rest of that, that world. So, great. Chris, we talked about the documentary, The Act of Killing, maybe last year. Yes, we reviewed it on the show. We did. Yeah. We did. We both were haunted by the film. We both were in all of its production. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the film where we took a look at 
you know, Indonesian civilian militia that basically murdered people, murdered communists, murdered Chinese, murdered people in their communities, uh, and felt like they were heroes for doing so. Right. And basically the film, the documentary was all about following some of these, these, uh, these militia, uh, the Indonesian, uh, killers, basically murderers, assassins, and in a way turning the tables on them a little bit to face what they've done. And it really was powerful, really tough to watch. Yes. But um, an interesting, fascinating documentary. Well, Agreed. I was actually kind of surprised when uh, 20 Feet from Stardom beat it out. Yeah. But I think, you know, not that that's a bad documentary, but um, I think it came down to nothing more than like maybe the Oscars wanted something feel good. Yeah. (laughs) And this one certainly was not the feel good. Right. Well, Joshua Oppenheimer, the director, actually has already finished a second one. Okay. Second documentary, which is kind of a follow-up to Act of Killing. Really? It's all in the same vein. Really? Uh, taking a little bit of a different slant from what I understand, where this time the person at the center of the film is AD, an ophthalmologist in his early 40s who travels around making house calls, fitting people for, for glasses and sure. spectacles. Sure. And his brother was killed by the militia just before AD was born. Okay? okay. So back in the 60s or so. Okay. So this um, is a young, young-ish doctor. You said he was... No, he's a little older now, but uh, he's a little older now. Yeah. Okay. So just before he was born. Okay. So That's right. Just before he was born, ago. I think back in the '60s, his okay. brother was killed. Gotcha. And I think they actually have it on on film somehow. His murder. Wow. And so a lot of the film is now his reaction to seeing what happened to his family member and what he does about it, or where he goes with it after like getting exposed to this kind of thing. So it's a little bit of a opposite view. Instead of trying to confront the killers themselves, we're now bringing in a family member hmm. to see some of the atrocities that were done and how it responds to it. Wow. Um, supposedly his brother was a petty criminal who was dragged out of prison along with hundreds of others and slaughtered so that the militia could boost their own version of a body count um, of communist slayings. Wow. And supposedly it was a sickening way in which they were killed. Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer has the killers on videotape doing just that. He appears to have discovered these stomach-turning characters about 10 years ago while researching the act of killing. So we see AD impassionately watching their performance on television and then going around to interview the killers, and in some cases fitting them with glasses in interview situations that's set up by Oppenheimer. So in other words, Oppenheimer's wow. putting AD in a position to go meet and interview Wow. Some of the killers that were responsible for butchering his brother. Gee. So if we thought active killing was tough to watch, yeah. this is, wow. Yeah, so, direct kind of sequel in a yeah. sense and just, wow. Anyway, I'm, of course, fascinated to see this, although I've, I, mean, I know I'm about to steal myself up for it because it was a right. tough watch watching active killing, uh, guess, especially the last 15, 20 minutes of it. I guess maybe them. this film, I mean, yes, yeah, such horrible, horrible subject matter. But if there could be a light at the end of the tunnel for this film to encourage you to watch it, it sounds like maybe there is some some justice, maybe. The mm-hmm. fact that this person gets to meet people that killed his brother and maybe make them realize what they've done. Yeah, so I'd, yeah, wow. That sounds fascinating, but also very, very tough. Yeah, yeah he is in his early 40s. So yeah, it would have 40s. been. Okay. His brother was killed in the 60s right before he was born. And now he's having to confront video of that happening and actually interview the killers that did it. Oh wow. My goodness. Anyway, do you have a, a new story that might be a little more uplifting? A chance? <laughs> I do. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we need to balance. This I was out wondering which one I had a couple that I was going to do and I was wondering which one I was going to do, but now I have absolutely no question. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, 
John Favreau. We talked yes. about him recently. He uh, made The Chef. Yes. And we talked about how, like, you know, we liked his kind of return to kind of indie film because mm-hmm. this was a smaller budget film, didn't get a huge release, but it was a comedy. It was funny. You're going to tell me that he signed on to direct uh, Transformers 5. No, but he mm. has signed on to direct a big budget oh, remake no. of a Disney film. Oh, yeah. Okay, I do know about this. And yeah. he is going to remake The Jungle Book. Now, yeah, this is I'm going right. to be a live action remake, but it's only going to have actually one human on screen. And it's going to be a 10 year old who's a first time actor. Mm-hmm. His name is Neil Sethi, I believe. And I've, Neil N-E-E-L. And he is a, I believe, a native uh, Indian from India. Okay. So he will be playing the part of Mowgli. Now, actors with, you know, the voices are going to voice, I guess, CGI animals so that the boy is not in danger of being killed. Sure. Um, so, so far they have Bagheera voiced by Ben Kingsley. Mm-hmm. They have King Louis voiced by Christopher Walken. <laughs> oh, wow. Scarlett Johansson doing the snake Ka and Bill Murray doing Baloo. So, okay. Alan, All right. how do you feel about this? I, I feel fine. I, I feel like you know, we have the cartoon animated version, the classic version of the Jungle Book, but yes. I have no problem with there being alternative versions. I don't know if this is planning on being more strict with the original text or not. I don't know. Sure. I'm not familiar with the original story at all. But no, I think the cast sounds great for the voices. I like talking animals. You know that about <laughs> me. So right. bring it on, I say. Uh, it sounds good. John Favreau, you know, I wasn't excited about him hearing he's going to do another big budget movie. I'd like him staying independent. But if he's going to do a big budget movie, this sounds like something he could have fun with. Yeah, I think it could be interesting. I'm not going to write it off. Um, I I think it could be interesting. The fact that they're not just merely doing like, I guess they wouldn't do a reboot of the animated version. Right. But um, it's interesting. They may go the same route they've gone with other films where now we're going to go a little more into the true source material and not the Disney version of it as Mm -hmm. much. Or not the Disney animated version. And if so, I think that's, that's fine. I'm always open to other interpretations of films. Uh, in different formats and applying different text to it. So we talked about Disney this year, having remade Maleficent or remake sleeping beauty with kind of a different slant. And it was a, you know, real life actors with Angelina Jolie doing Maleficent. Thought that was interesting. So that's what makes me think, okay, they're remaking the jungle book, but it's going to be live action. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm perfectly fine with that. I see no problem with it. More power to them. Uh, If if it's as enjoyable as chef was, I'm all ready for it. You know, it was a fun movie. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, okay, I've got one. Okay. So Martin Scorsese. Uh, I've heard of him. Yes. Up and coming director. Yes. Well, I'm a big fan. I like The Wolf of Wall Street, although you hated it. Uh, there's very few Martin Scorsese films I don't like. It was well made, but yeah, I just didn't. I know, you just didn't like it. <laughs> I really can't think of a Martin Scorsese film that I don't like to some level. I mm-hmm. like a lot more, some more than much others. Sure. Uh, but I thought this was interesting that supposedly the rumor floating around is that um, Scorsese may be looking to direct a film based on the Ramones. Oh, cool. That's very interesting to me. A, because it's not the Rolling Stones. All right. <laughs> I get it, Martin Scorsese. You like the Rolling Stones. You Apparently. work their music in every film you can. You even did a documentary uh, a performance film for them. Yes. I'm happy that you're doing something for another band. Which also featured Jack White, just to kind of tie things back around. (laughs) Uh, So I am happy to hear him doing The Ramones. I think The Ramones would be a fascinating film just because of who the characters are. I think the fact that we've got The Ramones themselves, we've got the Joey Ramones, we've got, you know, the the breakdown they had. I'm trying to remember the one that supposedly they had a big split with. Oh, Tommy, Tommy Ramone. Okay. 
it sounds like a lot of interesting family dynamics in a grunge rock band format. Could be really cool. So not a documentary. No, no. This, this would a, be a, a, a dramatic, dramatic film. film. Okay. So I'm all ready for it. I hope it does come to fruition. Now, is he going to... And I guess if he's this far along, he has license rights to the music. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. not going to make a film that doesn't right. have the actual songs that he right. can he can license. It's not going to be like the Jimi Hendrix thing we talked no. about recently. No, gotcha. it's I, I I'm excited because <laughs> I'm not the world's biggest Ramon fan. I like the Ramones. I'm more fascinated by the Ramones as characters. So I want to sure. see a film that really helps me understand who they were. Well, and they're you know giant figureheads in the world of music, mm-hmm. you know, their style of music and, you know, punk and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I am genuinely interested. Do you know, I'm wondering, um, at one time he was supposed to do a movie based on that book, Devil in the White City with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I heard of that. And yeah. And I was just wondering, I guess maybe if, uh, the Ramones is maybe his next project. I guess he's still pushing off. Devil well, supposedly he's got several kind of floating around. So it's, it's not a busy like, man. So it's no, <laughs> it's hard to say whether the Ramones would be his next film or if he's got several others, but the rumors are, it's just, he is circling the project. Mm. He wants to do it. No screenwriter or I cast have been assigned or anything yet, but, okay. um, so I think it'll be interesting to see if he pulls it off. If anybody's going to pull off a, a film about the Ramones, I wanted to be Martin Scorsese. Will Leonardo DiCaprio be one of the Ramones <laughs> wearing a wig and sunglasses? Yes, he's going to be Joey. Okay, he's, it's perfect fit. <laughs> okay. Now, actually, you know who, who you know who they need to get? Who? They need to get that guy Adam Driver, um, who he you would probably know him from Inside Lewin Davis. He was the uh, the one other singer that he roomed with for a while. Really oh, yeah. tall, thin he guy. The, uh, outer space. Yes. Or whatever. Please and he's Spencer. on the TV show Girls on HBO. Okay. Uh, he's just tall, lanky. He just can really play that that Brooklyn. And maybe st- somewhat of a musician. Yeah, okay. I think so. So I, that could be a great fit for uh, one of the Ramones. Probably so casting Joey. director. You need to pay Alan a stipend. There you go. If you decide to use him. And Adam, call me. I'll represent you. You know, <laughs> I can do that. So we got anything else? Uh, no, that's that's it for me for news-wise. The only other two things I'll just throw out really quick just to keep on people's radar. Uh, the film Foxcatcher is coming out pretty soon in time for award season. That's Bennett Miller who did Moneyball and did uh, Capote. And uh, it's all about a real-life story, true story of a wrestling coach uh, who – uh, is accused of killing one of his uh, one of his uh, the members of his team, and the dynamics with that murdered uh, wrestler's brother. I don't know much about the story, but I will tell you, Steve Carell plays the the lead character, and it's shocking seeing him in a trailer or movie poster. How different they have made him look and um, act and feel. He's not a good guy. No, not at all. <laughs> right. So I think if nothing else. Even if you have no intentions to see the movie, watch the trailer and just see what they've done with Steve Carell. It's really fascinating. Hmm. And last thing I'll mention, just also on the trailer side, I know I'm really trying to be down on trailers. I'm really trying not to watch a lot of trailers anymore because okay. after our conversation a few months ago, I'm really like, you know, I don't want to be ruined on this stuff. Sure. However, I did watch the trailer for Rosewater, which is the new film that was written and directed by Jon Stewart. Okay. He left The Daily Show for a few months to go make this film. And uh, the trailer's really powerful. I don't know if they amped up the sentimentality and the drama for the trailer, but it looks like it could be a really good film. Now, they may have edited it to look like an award-winning, dramatic, uh, historical film, but it does look good. I'll give them that. I'm curious to see how Rosewater and Unbroken 
go up against each other, yeah. much like Wolf of Wall Street and American Hustle no, you're went right. up against each other last year. Both of those were based on true stories and were very stylistic and of And now directed subject. by famous people similar that are not normally matter. known to be directors. Right. Yeah, I could see that. I think uh, Unbroken is going to be much more the Hollywood which level. is the Angelina Jolie yeah. piece. Okay. I think it's going to be wide release. It's going to be like played up a bit, a lot in Oscar season. I got a feeling Rosewater is going to be a much more under the radar, hmm. smaller film. Okay. Uh, it definitely has a smaller film look, but it's Gail uh, Garcia Bernal in, in the lead role, and he looks impressive as always. So anyway, hmm. a couple other films to just kind of check, keep on the radar out there for people listening. And we don't normally, I don't, we've done it maybe in the history of the show, but I'm going to go ahead and tease what we'll be reviewing on our next show because mm-hmm. uh, people probably have heard of this film. You can still oh, catch yes. it. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Yes. Um, so it's 12 years in the making. Won't say a lot about it now, but I think it's fair to say that Alan and I are both anticipating it. We are looking forward to it. And I'm trying not to go in with high expectations, although right now it is one of the highest reviewed films on Rotten Tomatoes and other places. Again, that's normally when I start to really ratchet down my own expectations <laughs> and say, okay, sure. let's just take it on face value and see how it is. Gotcha. So we'll be able to talk about that at our next recording and uh, next episode. So look forward to that. So Chris, let's round up the show. Do you have a recommendation for a film that either you caught up with again recently or maybe just kind of came back to your attention that you want to share with everybody out there in our listening world? I do. Um, the film I'm going to recommend is not a new film. It is celebrating its 30th anniversary, actually, okay. and it is Ghostbusters. Um, I think I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, cast of characters, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, uh, directed by Ivan Reitman. I uh, watched this movie nonstop when I was a kid, but I saw the edited version that was only on TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it had a lot of, but you know, the, believe it or not, which was kind of surprising to me, it was PG. Yeah. And maybe because at the time they didn't have a PG-13. They did not. And I think it probably would have edged a little bit more in that tier. It oh, have been, it, would have it would have been, been PG-13. It would have been an R, I don't no, think. No, no, no. It would but have been a PG-13 if that existed at the time. Yeah. But uh, I liked the movie. And going back, I just watched it again recently. And yes, the effects don't really look that great. But it was 1984. And what I was really surprised at is you're looking at people that were at the height of their powers. Ivan yes. Reitman was an awesome director. Dan Aykroyd was good. You know, Bill Murray was good. And it's like they're at their height of their powers. Even somebody like Sigourney Weaver, which I love her in the Alien movies and stuff. But in this, she plays the perfect foil to Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, and um, somebody like uh, Rick Moranis, who plays kind of a, a dork, you know, and it's just everything was just was perfect. It's like all the pieces came together, even right. the script, the way, and I didn't notice this as a kid. But the way things are introduced in the film and they come back. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not ruining anything because I think most of you have probably seen Ghostbusters. But, you know, there's a package of marshmallows laying on the counter and they are stay puffed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Early on when they're using the proton packs, they mention, you know, hey, cross the streams. You know, don't don't do that. You know, and things and it comes back. Things all yeah. tiny, and it's not like over the head hitting you over the head like, oh, gee, I wonder if they're going to do this later on. It's just, you know, just a lot of perfect things kind of all coming together so do the effects hold up not really but that's okay it's mm-hmm. still to me a very good film if you haven't seen it in a while and you want to laugh i i, I recommend ghostbusters well, ghostbusters is one of my all-time favorites absolutely and i i agree it it's one of those comedies that still everything works you know there's not a lot of spots that don't in the film 
there's a couple places I think some things got a little messy. Uh, even with Bill, Bill Murray kind of allowed to ad lib so much that there's a few times where it just didn't really make sense. I still okay. remember those po- those parts kind of jump out at me, but man, you could, I mean, this is how much I love this film is my wife. I took my wife to New York city a couple weekends ago okay. for her, for, for her birthday. And while there I'm in my head, keeping track of all the ghostbusters locations oh, that we're cool. seeing because I am kind of wanting to do my own little personal Ghostbusters walking tour. <laughs> so I'm out in front of the public library Excellent. and I'm thinking, okay, first scene of the film. This is awesome. Uh, Columbia University is where they are as professors there right. that they get evicted from or kicked out of. Uh, I did not make it to the fire station that was the actual is Ghostbusters. Still around? Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. It is a functioning fire station now. Okay. A couple other places I got to see. I mean, yeah, it was just, it's, it's a fun movie. I mean, any movie that makes you want to go out and see those locations and just memorize, and like you're playing back scenes and lines in your head as you're doing so, obviously is a film that works. So, um, okay, mine's, here's, here's my deal. I am recommending a film for you to view, but not because I think it's a good film. <laughs> okay. It's a film that I actually watched again recently and was actually shocked at how bad it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> In that it's a film that most, a lot of people love. It was a big blockbuster film. And I will admit to saying I liked it when it came out, but man, after seeing it again, it's really clumsy. Mm. It's Jurassic Park. Okay. I watched it again the other day because... Uh, you know, there's been talk about there's Jurassic. Talk of a new one. Well, Jurassic World, which okay. is coming out next summer, and it actually stars Chris Platt, or Pratt. So, oh, you know, yeah, he's the lead in it, and it also has um, well, who um, uh, Richie Cunningham's who who's the guy that played Richie in uh, uh, Happy Days? Director now, Ron Howard. Ron Howard. Ron Howard's daughter is in it. Oh, what's her name? Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Yes, or Bryce yeah, Dallas yeah. Howard. Okay. So they've got some good names on this Jurassic World thing, and I'm huh. kind of jazzed. I'm like, I'm not. The, uh, the director, man, I'm, I'm spacing. It's Friday afternoon. It's the end of the day, yeah. and I'm forgetting every single name. But the director is actually a very interesting choice of a director, and I'll, I'll pull it up here in a second while I'm talking. Hmm. It kind of got me thinking, though. It's like, you know, Jurassic Park was on TV. I'm like, yeah, let me watch it again. I haven't seen this in a while. All right, I'll give it. At the time, the effects were really, really good. But man, from a storytelling standpoint and an acting standpoint, it actually was really bad. Worse than I even remembered it was. Alan, you are the preacher. I am the choir. Okay. All right. I hated Jurassic Park when it came out. Now, as we've discussed before, I am a reader. Uh, I was actually in Moscow when that movie came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, one of the books I took over there to keep me entertained on the plane flight was Jurassic Park. I read the book. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I came back. You know, it was all over the theaters. Everybody's like, "Oh, Jurassic Park!" I went and saw it, and I hated it. And you know, the first hated time I saw it, it, I didn't hate it. Oh, I man. was, although I came out of the movie not feeling good about it. I liked it for the spectacle, mm-hmm. and I will say the T Rex attack scene in the in the jeep was very traumatic, and was very well shot and edited, and it was terrifying. <laughs> but outside of that. There's really not a lot to the film. And actually, the first 45 minutes I'm watching this film, I'm shocked at how clumsy the dialogue is. Yeah, I remember um, the dialogue being How bad. certain scenes just didn't make sense. Spielberg weaved in so many cute little moments to try to make the movie cute, but yet it was completely in dichotomy with what the film really was trying to be. Which the film's menacing. Oh, and, yeah. and it's uh, I was just really disappointed after watching it again. I remember 
when it came out and I was on a date in college and I took the date to go see it. And I remember there being families in the movie theater because they're like, <laughs> oh, it's dinosaurs. It's going to be fun. <laughs> and of course, kids are screaming and running out of the theater. And I remember that probably stuck with me more about maybe enjoying the film from a little bit of a sadistic standpoint. Of a like dinosaur eats a guy on a port john Oh, or, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's hilarious, and it was, right? <laughs> at that point, it was like, okay, yeah, they're not playing around with this film. No. Uh, but I will tell you, I was just, I was really disappointed, even more so watching it again, how clumsy it is from a dialogue and plot standpoint. So that's an interesting, yeah, it's sort of recommendation for something that for people to go back and kind of check out. This is a Spielberg movie. It was a huge box. It's a well-beloved success. film started you, a whole franchise. If you love it, go back and check it out again. See if see it holds you, up. See, how, see if it holds up. Cause we're both recommending older movies. We didn't talk yeah. about this beforehand, but we're both recommending older movies. Yeah. So. And it, it, it's a perfect example of why Ghostbusters holds up mm-hmm. because it works. Everything clicks. All the chemistry is there. This movie chemistry is zero between any of the characters. Laura Dern and Sam Neill are the two. Yes. Yeah. They try so hard to make Sam Neill's character be the next Indiana Jones and it doesn't work. <laughs> Laura Dern's character says some of the most ridiculous things and it just seems so out there in her performance. Jeff Goldblum. I, I like Jeff Goldblum. And he's like fun. Goldblum. He's fun in the movie. But when he goes on some of his tangents, he's the only enjoyable part of the film for me. Mm. Watching him with some of his, his, uh, his, his speeches, his monologues. But they're so ill-placed in the film and like they will just juxtapose against a scene that just is the most light flowery. And then you go to him talking about chaos theory and mm. this very random dialogue. And it's just, where is this film going with this? So it was very frustrating for me to watch it. Uh, going back, circling back, Jurassic World is being directed by Colin Trevorrow, who did Safety Not Guaranteed. Ah, um, and that's about all he's done. <laughs> So to go from Safety Not Guaranteed, which was a very small, simple budget film, to now directing Jurassic World, starring Mr. Big Blockbuster, now Chris Pratt, uh, along with others, that's interesting. Be curious to see where, where that goes. And before we close things out, I just wanted to, since it, you mentioned a news item mm-hmm. on that film, I'm going to mention the news item that's been knocked around about Ghostbusters. They made okay. a sequel, and now they're talking about making Ghostbusters 3. Well, first off, we don't speak of Ghostbusters 2. Come on. No. Now I need to revisit nope. it. Nope. That I movie remember- does not work. Wow. No, I'm not saying it's as good as the original. No, no. Oh, oh please. No. It has some very funny moments. Very few. But wow. in general, it's way too hokey and way too trying to trying to trying to mimic themselves. I feel like, huh? I, I need I need to revisit. I remember liking it, but I, I'm not like loving it. But huh. no. But they're talking about doing a third one. Um, Ivan Reitman, the director, has mm-hmm. supposedly said that he's interested in directing it. They've been kicking around a script forever. They even came out with a video game like two or three years ago. I do remember that. There was like a really high budget video game. It was like they're trying to hype people back up mm-hmm. for the Ghostbusters franchise. Um, Harold Ramis, unfortunately, in 2014, he passed away, yeah. and he was Egon. So one of the theories that's been kicked around for a reboot, even though it's a sequel of sorts, was to make the Ghostbusters all women. Yes. Alan, take it away. <laughs> Sounds good to me. I mean, again, I, I'm never one of those guys that feels like if you make a sequel to a film that it somehow ruins the original. Mm-hmm. I say if you've got a good premise, and Ghostbusters is a great premise. Absolutely. Run with it. Go do something. I kind of wish they would have done something 15 years ago mm-hmm. and kind of kept the momentum going. Other now, than Ghostbusters too. Right. <laughs> now it is going to come across as a big cash grab. Sure. But I like the idea if they're going to turn it on its head and say, you know what? 
Ghostbusters are still around. Okay. Let's just assume in our world, Ghostbusters two happened. And all these years later, Ghostbusters are still happening. That's still a franchise. Maybe they've set up new shops and new offices across the nation. Who knows? There's a whole world you could explore there. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that they weren't going to do a reboot because that probably would have ticked me off. Sure. If you try to go in and say, we're going to cast all new guys to play the original Ghostbusters and it's going to be retelling the Ghostbusters origin thing. No, I don't want that. Let's go with a world where Ghostbusters have been around the last 30 years. Mm. And it's just, we're now following a new group that's just been trained and their turn leaves to go be Ghostbusters. And if they're all female, awesome. So be it. I, I admit I'm interested in it, the fact mm. that they would bother doing it. I got to admit though, you know, all female, that's cool. I do kind of want somehow for Bill Murray and Dan oh. Aykroyd to be involved. And I want they have like, to be. And I don't just want it to, to be a cute, stupid cameo. Like yeah. I want there somehow to be so they don't have to be the main people, obviously, if the yeah. Ghostbusters are ladies, it's not gonna be. But somehow for them to be in there. That's, well, here's a perfect idea. So you're following so screenwriters, listen up. You're following this new group of train trainees mm-hmm. who happen to be all female. And they kind of are getting the uh, maybe they're getting put down by the other franchise chains of oh it's the old girls, <laughs> they can't do it like like we can you know we've built up this real reputation for Ghostbusters being really good and solid and strong and now there's these women that have to prove themselves. Gotcha. But part of them proving themselves is seeking out the advice and mentoring of the original Ghostbusters, <laughs> and maybe they do stumble across Dan Aykroyd and they stumble across uh, Ernie Hudson pretty easily. Right. But Bill Murray's the elusive it's like the one. Recluse one. That's at the by the end of the movie, they finally have caught up with Bill Murray and they're getting the ultimate advice and blessing and mentoring. That's a film right there. I will pay money to see that movie. Okay, good. <laughs> so make his like almost like Zombieland was where his cameo was you're actually kind of wondering if he's even gonna be in the film. Wow. And then when he shows up, it's kind of a surprise. That would be amazing. Yeah, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Yes. There we go. See, we've not only Adam Driver's agent we've become. We've become <laughs> screenwriters for the next Ghostbusters movie. Man, we do go so much in this hour and a half we sit oh, we together. Do. It's we amazing. Really do. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, we're going to wrap it up. We talked about four films, all ones in limited release or maybe video on demand. You're not going to find them at the multiplex more than, more, more than likely, though. Ida, Alan Partridge, Life After Beth, and Only Lovers Left Alive. We hit a few uh, news items, talked about Martin Scorsese maybe doing a Ramones film. Talked about uh, the uh, Joshua Oppenheimer doing a, another follow-up to the act of killing. You talked about uh, Favreau doing Jungle Book. That's right. And Romanek possibly doing The Shining uh, Seat or a prequel. So a lot of sequels or new projects off of old ideas type of thing in the news. Then we capped off our recommendations where we have both um, me talking about Jurassic Park not to go see or watching again. But looking at it from a very critical eye and seeing if you can see all the faults that I saw this time around. And then, Chris, the opposite story. Ghostbusters, worth reviewing, worth rewatching every single time because it just works. Celebrate the 30th anniversary. There you go. Perfect. Great. So with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of Foot Candle Films. Again, special thanks to the Greater Hickory Kia Classic for being a sponsor for the Mesh uh, for the next little bit. Leading up to their next big tournament, October 13th through the 19th in Conover, North Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about the tournament or attending and want to get some tickets, go to www.greaterhickorykiaclassic.com. And thank you so much to uh, the Greater Hickory Kia Classic and the Rock Barn Golf and Spa for being a supporter of The Mesh. With that, we're going to wrap up the episode. Of course, as always, you can see us more on themesh.tv where you can find old episodes and even reach out to us if you've got questions or comments about the reviews we gave on this uh, this episode. 
And uh, go online on iTunes. Give us a subscribe button. Give us a star rating. Follow us. Make sure you can get new episodes whenever they come out. And with that, we'll definitely get together next time. Looks like we will be talking about Boyhood and possibly another film or two. So with that, we're going to sign off. Thanks so much for listening. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.